Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. The team consists of the great Mats Vlander, seven-time Grand Slam champion, former number one in the world, a recent birthday boy. We'll get to that a little later. Johnny Levine, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American. And guys, there's lots to get to as we've just finished up Cincinnati. We're rounding the corner into the U.S. Open. And, and since the hard court season started, and we'll really say that it kind of started with the Olympics, we've been trying to figure out who is the toughest opponent out there, and they're dropping like flies. Roger Federer, has pulled out of the U.S. Open, now has Rafael Nadal. So, of course, Novak Djokovic is, well, you would think the prohibitive favorite in the U.S. Open, but really, ultimately, who's turning out to be the toughest opponent of them all, guys, is Father Time. And Mats Wielander won the French Open at age 17, and suddenly we're a day removed from the old guy turning now 57 years of age. So if my math is correct... When you won your first French Open title, Mats Wielander, in 1982, Roger Federer was just a bouncing baby boy on his mother and father's knee, just shy of a year old, and now the guy's 40. I mean, where has the time gone? Yeah, uh, good evening, guys. It's unbelievable that I am going back to some of these slams, and it's 40 years ago it does feel a few years back but so many things have happened in those 40 years but uh, I you touched on it I mean for Roger Federer to even be considering coming back after yet another surgery at 40 years old that I think is a little bit uh, worrying is that even possible I hope it is because I'm dying to see him finish uh, while playing and finish on his own terms uh, and then of course Rafa Nadal is also sort of feeling feeling that father time is is catching up to him. And even Novak Djokovic, I have to say, for the first time, I feel like Novak Djokovic is getting a little bit older and those young guys are uh, not afraid of the big three anymore. Johnny Levine, it's uh, it was celebratory down at the Broadmoor as I got to spend Mats Wielander's birthday with him. And it's going to be a much more solemn occasion a week from Thursday when I turn 60. And the thought of that is, is mind-boggling because I remember the day I turned 30. And on that very day, Jimmy Connors turned 39 as he and I share a birthday, September 2nd. And for those that look back as we get ready for the U.S. Open, one of the most amazing U.S. Open moments of all time was September 2nd, 1991, Jimmy Connors' 39th birthday, my 30th, when Jimmy Connors would have that amazing match against Aaron Krikstein, one that Aaron Krikstein would just rue the the day that it would become cloudy and he would see storm clouds gathering at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center because he knew that if it started to rain that they were going to go to that match on television to fill time. Do you think that we might be treated to something similar uh, from a drama perspective in this year's U.S. Open some 30 years later? Well, it's a shame that we won't get to see the great Federer at 39 years old, or, or is 40. he actually 40 now, um, to see a performance from Federer to get to the semifinal. But yeah, that, that was probably one of the most historic U.S. Opens that we've, we've ever witnessed. Um, Connors winning all those matches, getting to the semifinals at that age, really out of nowhere. And, and uh, the Crickstein match was, was, was just sensational down two sets to love and ends up winning the match this year. You know what I, I'm going as far as picking who's going to win this year. I'm going to go with uh, three guys that I think can win the tournament. And I don't think, I think it will definitely be either Djokovic, Zverev or Medvedev. 
Um, so we'll see what those guys can produce, but, but one of those three is, is, is going to win this tournament for sure. A lot on the line for Djokovic. It's going to be interesting. A lot on the line for Djokovic to say the very least, as he goes for the first calendar slam since 1969. Talk about going back to 1991. We go back much further when we start talking about the potential for a calendar slam. Matt's coming off of the Wimbledon victory. It looked like it was Novak Djokovic's world and everyone else was just living in it. You and I talked a little bit about this while we were down at the Broadmoor, which is based on the result in Tokyo and based on what we have now seen from Sasha Zverev winning the Olympic gold medal, winning in somewhat dominant fashion in Cincinnati, does he become the guy that poses the most serious threat to upending Djokovic at the U.S. Open now that Nadal and Federer are gone? I do think so. Um, I think that Zverev obviously has always uh, been full of confidence, even though uh, we have doubted his uh, his Grand Slam results. They have become much better, of course, but I still go back to that US Open final against uh, Dominic Thiem when he was two sets to love up and should have won it. So to me, it's really difficult to say that I believe Sasha Zverev uh, is a favorite to win a Grand Slam until he's proven me or proven everybody that he's able to deal with the pressure. Playing two out of three sets is a massive difference, first of all. I do think with that serve, he is the most dangerous player uh, to Novak. He can stay with him from the baseline. Zverev is fit enough, he's strong enough. And that first serve is just a different level to Medvedev and Stefano Tsitsipas and, and, uh, and all the other guys. I mean, Alexander Zvedev's first serve is basically as good as John Isner's when he is serving well. John Isner is more consistent, uh, has a higher uh, percentage of first serves, but but Zvedev's is actually harder uh, and it comes from very high up. So I think with that serve, there's a good chance that Zvedev himself believes he can beat Novak. But again, three out of five sets, Grand Slam tennis trying to win the calendar Grand Slam. I think there is enough there for Novak to, first of all, forget everything that happened in Tokyo uh, and then remind himself that these guys are not ready to take me out in three out of five sets. Okay, forget what happened in Tokyo, but to your point, Matt, and I'll pose this to you, Johnny, can you necessarily forget about what happened at the U.S. Open in 2020 when you had Zvera, for all intents and purposes, have the title in the palm of his hand, up 5-3 in the fifth set, served for the title, up in the fifth set tie break, let it get away. Dominic Team will not be back to defend his title. Novak Djokovic hit a lines person in the throat in anger with a tennis ball. He's got some scar tissue that he's got to try to find some redemption. And would the ultimate final this year, based on what's going on in men's pro tennis right now, be a Djokovic-Zverev final? Djokovic Zverev final. I believe so. I do. Because I think Zverev right now is playing the best tennis in, in men's pro tennis right now. And uh, what has impressed me the most about Zverev was coming back from basically make, possibly one of the biggest chokes in a Grand Slam final. That that could have been a deciding factor on, on I mean, Matt, I remember you saying that you didn't think it would affect him. You think he, he would be fine. I questioned it. And 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 you you were certainly correct. I mean, he's come back just very strong and, and almost as if, um, you know, he's learned from the match because the, the Olympic finals and the Olympic event, he was super strong, super confident, no, no tightness. Even in Cincinnati a couple days ago, the way he came back against Tsitsipas, he's just playing at a really high level. And, and I believe that his serve is so much more improved. Um, he's more, much more confident on the second serve. And I think he's, he knows he's been there now. I, I, I think he knows he has a long career. I think he feels super confident that he's going to be around and, and play a lot of majors. So I, I think he knows it's going to happen for him. I think that's taken a lot of pressure off him. So I, I, I he could almost be, I, I know what you're saying, Matt. He's never won a slam. How do you make him a favorite? But in a way, he might just be the favorite. So it'll be really interesting to see. And I'd love to see a Djokovic-Zvera final. Matt, you've mentioned it a number of times yourself, and we keep going back to it. But I'm afraid sometimes we lose sight of the difference between taking out a Novak Djokovic, which I, I thought maybe he was ripe for the taking in Tokyo because of the fact that it was best of three. 
but here we go again. It's best of five. That's a very different ball game. And with very few players in the history of our sport, has it been as different a ball game going from best of three to best of five as it is with Novak Djokovic? It's a huge difference for um, guys that have won Grand Slams and obviously uh, guys that have won 20 of them too. The two out of, the two out of three sets, there's just so much risk involved with, with the kind of serves that the guys have today. And even on the women's side, and I think that's the reason why we have so many different uh, female Grand Slam champions. I think, yeah, there's no one dominating, but I do think it has to do with that, that their games are much bigger, their serves are much bigger, and it's very difficult to break serve even on the women's tour. And therefore, two out of three sets, uh, it's it's very risky. You have to be lucky. Uh, so I think for Zverev, what what worries me about Sasha Zverev is at the French Open in the first round, uh, he was down two sets to love to Oscar Otte, uh, a German sort of uh, a journeyman. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, Misha Zverev, Sasha's older brother. He he said he was working for Eurosport. Uh, together with me, and he said, "Well, that was just another one of those typical Sasha matches. He starts slowly." Well, you can't start slowly against mediocre players. You can start slowly against Stefano Tsitsipas in the French Open final, if your name's Novak Djokovic, because Tsitsipas played out of his mind. But I think Sasha Zverev's level sometimes is not as high as he would like to against the lesser players. And because of that, he's going to get a little bit tired and his confidence will be dented, I think. Uh, but uh, yes, he, he is the most dangerous player. I agree with you there, Johnny. Isn't it amazing how Dominic team you would have thought he was going to take the step into the threat to the big three uh, and Sasha Sverev was going to suffer big time. And it's the complete opposite. So uh, when somebody asks me, how does it feel to win a Grand Slam? Great, right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't always feel great. Sometimes it's just over in a minute. It's over. You don't think about it. And sometimes that confidence lasts for a long time. Uh, and uh, I think that... Sasha Sverev, again, I think he believes he belongs. And I think that's his greatest asset apart from that big, big first serve. Johnny, we got word of the fact that Zverev and Tsitsipas obviously played in the semifinals of Cincinnati. Zverev sneaking by in a third set tiebreak and afterward uh, was quoted as saying that he feels that Stefano Tsitsipas is receiving illegal coaching by way of his father texting him that he leaves the court, goes for a bathroom break, takes his whole bag, has his phone in the bag, and suddenly his father's in the stands texting away. And this is becoming a story. And this is going to become something that if these two should be on some sort of a collision course toward some kind of potential semifinal or even finals match, should something happen to Djokovic, this is going to be something that's going to come up. Do you think that a storyline like that is actually good for the game and that the top players, if they have a little, if they have a little bad blood between them, that actually creates a little bit more intrigue, particularly for a New York crowd? Yeah, Andy, I do. I think it could, you know, make for some good drama. What was interesting in that match was Zverev was complaining to the referee and, and obviously Sitsipas saw that, that um, what Zverev was doing and, and didn't allow him to go take that second break, thinking that he was communicating with his dad with texting. And so that was kind of a, you know, a big incident right there. And the, the, the funny part was that you, you knew Zverev was really pissed, not really knowing how Sitsipas felt about it. I'm sure he was upset with Zverev's for, you know, basically, you know, going to the umpire on him, but at the end of the match, you know, Zverev made, made that great comeback and, you know, he, he, he started not to feel so great at the end of that match. And I think it took some pressure off. He was able to come back and win the match and then had a really, you know, nice embrace with him after the match because he won. I mean, how would he have been if he had lost? That's what I thought was, was, was so interesting. And I, and I wonder what Stefanos thinks uh, he handled it at the moment, but I'm wondering if he's still pissed off at him for, for turning him into the umpire like that. But it, I thought that was really interesting, though, how Zverev kind of forgot about how upset he was um, after the match and, and, and basically hugged it out with him. That, that was kind of weird to me. Let me throw one thing in here, guys, um, about coaching. So if I'm playing a, a big match, a semis of a, a, a Masters Series or in a Grand Slam, please, please do listen to your coach, my dear opponent, because there is zero chance 
that the coach is right more often than the player in terms of sensing what he needs to do. It's a, it's a, it's a risk. Whenever you tell somebody, whenever you tell yourself that I think I should change my tactics and do uh, B, C instead of plan A, it's still a risk. We don't know what's right or wrong. But if you get coaching from the outside uh, and, and you don't feel that that is the exact right thing to do, it's going to hurt you. So, uh, I, I mean, for me, if my, if my opponent gets coaching, I'm going to say, good, good, you get coaching. Because you think your coach knows what you're supposed to do right now? These guys are great players. Stefanos Tsitsipas has all the weapons. Uh, clearly, he's a, he's a tough match, uh, a big match player. Uh, he's very emotional. He knows how to do different things. There's no way that whatever the father says, it's in the long run going to be better for Tsitsipas uh, than not. I mean, I still am waiting for the day when the coach actually said something uh, that actually turned match around. Obviously, with Serena Williams, that wasn't quite close when Patrick Moratoglou did it to her uh, during the finals against Naomi Osaka. So again, it's a sign of weakness if you're getting coached by your father or your coach. And by the way, uh, I think that uh, Sasha Sverev is receiving a little bit of help from the sideline, whether it's come on in different versions, in different ways. I mean, when you're dealing with a father as a coach, it's not like the father has to spell it out. It's just either say, come on, Come on. I mean, you can do it in so many different ways. And is that called coaching? So I think this is a story that uh, will blow over. And I think that the players at some point need to get together and say, okay, let's forget about this. Are we going to receive coaching? Are we going to allow it or not? Because now it's getting ridiculous to me. I have to counter one thing. Hold Hold that thought, Johnny. We're going to break because we're scratching the surface of coaching in the sport of tennis. We've heard from the recently turned 57-year-old Matt Svelander what he thinks. I want to get your thoughts, and I'm going to give you some of mine. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Coaching in tennis, should we or shouldn't we? Don't go away. we got more right after this. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media, but why SquadPod? SquadPod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden, that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the chuckus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot, and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids, being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by Squad Pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with Squad Pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Andy Zoden. I'm joined by Matt Vlander. I'm joined by Johnny Levine. And Johnny, the ball's in your court. You heard what Matt said about coaching in tennis. He's like, have at it. You're not going to help your guy if you try to coach him mid-match. But we've got it in college tennis. We've got it in high school tennis. There are elements of, of tennis that include coaching. Why not in the pros? You know, I, it's a it's a tough one for me. I, I've always enjoyed the fact that it's an individual sport and you're out there on your own. 
I know in boxing, you, you know, you have the, uh, the corner man, the corner man, uh, you know, during, after each round, um, I, I do have to dispute Matt on one case. I do, I do agree with you that I think it, when you're in the moment in the match, it's hard to, you know, think about advice here or there. Is it right? Is it wrong? Do you want to take it? Do you not want to? But there was one of the greatest coaching moments during a break, maybe in the history of the game, was the 1999 French Open final. Brad Gilbert against, was it? Um, it was, uh, it was Messi against Medvedev. In Me- the Medvedev, yeah. And, and Medvedev had won the first two sets, I think, two and one rain break. And uh, Gilbert got hold of Agassi, and evidently um, it's been told that that was the turning point, the advice he gave him. And, and that really changed everything. I know Brad Gilbert is a big advocate of coaching in, in pro tennis. You know, I, I'm sure it would add a, a unique element to it. I'm not I'm, I'm not in that camp. I, I kind of like the guys figuring out um, on their own. I think it's uh, it, it's just part of tennis and it's part of what to me makes tennis so great and the, and the individual sport and the guys having to figure it out on their own. But I think at some point they're, they're, it's going to be added in. There's too many other events that have it. Um, I think I think the players want it. So I think it's going to happen at some point. Matt, I'm going to ask you this question because having gotten to know you now, as I have over these past few years, I can take a wild guess and assume that had you not become a pro tennis player and you had an opportunity to be a professional in another sport, it would have been golf because you love the sport. You're addicted to it. You're quite good at it. If you were out on the pro tour playing golf, would you want a caddy that had course knowledge that was there to help you, that was in your ear to make sure that some of the difficult times could be navigated as a team. What's the difference between that and, and having a coach on the tennis court? Yeah. The big difference is that the course is not giving you any vibes uh, is not bouncing back. It's not kicking your ball off the green, so to speak. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I think the basic coaching could help in certain situations, um, I think you can prepare your player in tennis before the match. If you do it properly, I don't think you need you need to be coaching your player during the match. You could say things like, if you lose the first set because uh, you're not making enough first serves, if that happens, then start spinning your first serve. So I think you can set your player up a little bit. But I do think that that feeling of what the weight of shot that's coming off your opponent's racket, the amount of spin that's coming off your opponent's uh, a forehand and backhand, the pace of the serve, not according to the speedometer, but according to your reaction time. I don't think you can see that as a coach. And I know that, uh, and I agree with you, Johnny. I mean, that that uh, Andre Agassi turnaround against Andre Medvedev was incredible. But And, and Brad Gilbert, I'm sure that he, he is, he's in for coaching and he, th- he thinks he should be allowed. How many times do you think coaches has given the players the wrong advice and it hasn't worked way more than the actual coach has given the right advice i am a hundred percent sure about that Uh, i think that the players in the long run uh, it's a feeling you get in your heart uh and how you have to play i mean it's 15 30 it's four all are you telling me that the coach is gonna be able to tell you when it's 15 30 or four he's gonna serve wide he's gonna kick it right no there's no way. He doesn't know where the toss goes. He doesn't know what you're seeing in your opponent's uh, service motion and the toss. So, again, I really, really don't think it helps at all. I think it helps educate some of the younger players to have a better game plan going into the match and maybe have a, a plan B and a plan, plan C. But, again, I think all this can be achieved by one or two words. I don't think you need to... Uh, uh, make phone calls or texts a player in changeovers but um, do I think it's going to happen yes I do think it's hard to control for the referee and the chair umpire and why not I don't think it's going to disturb I just don't want the coaches to end up sitting on the court next to their player because I know there's a few guys that think that Patrick Moratoglo has come out publicly a couple of years ago and said that's what he thinks they're doing it in Davis Cup they're doing it in ATP Cup Well, that would be absolutely horrendous, I think, for professional tennis. Johnny, we both have tremendous amount of respect for our former college coach, Dave Snyder, and he's one of the winningest coaches in the history of college tennis. And I know that you enjoyed your time 
playing for him at UT. But as far as the X's and O's of a match were concerned, were there matches where what Coach Snyder had to say made a huge difference in the way you approach the match and potentially help turn things around? I know there was one doubles match where you and Tom Fontana were getting it pretty well handed to you by uh, by Kelly Everton and Pat Surrett. And somehow or another, you guys came from way back and ended up winning that match. What did Coach Snyder have to do with that other than just settling you guys down and, and maybe getting in the way of you two getting into a fist fight with each other? Well, that did happen a few times. But, um, you know, probably Coach Snyder at that point was just telling us to, you know, not to back up from the net and, and be more aggressive you know, with the volleys, I'm sure that was part of the strategy. But with college tennis coaching, you know, the strategy is is super important. I think, you know, it can really help in college tennis. It, it, but but I'm I'm kind of in the Mats Vilander camp, and I think that when you're in the heat of the match, you kind of know what's happening in a match if you have half a brain, and and I think that you understand, you know, a player's weaknesses and strengths. Maybe, maybe you're not thinking straight sometimes and a coach can remind you, but um, I think the coach in college tennis, a lot of times can be a support and encouragement, a pick me up type of an attitude type thing, but to get into the nitty gritty of, you know, maybe you serve in Bali a little more, things like this, but these are all basics. And I think Matt's is right about that. I think to, to, to do drastic changes um, sometimes can, can, can hurt you. But, um, you know, I'm kind of all over the place on it. But I, but ultimately, I think that, um, you know, small tips and small pointers probably can can maybe do some good and and can't hurt you too bad. So it's yeah. a tough one. Andy, Andy, I'm chipping I'm chipping my backhand down the line and I'm coming into your forehand uh, right now. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, really? and Do we have to go there? There's a, there's a good chance you're going to hit a winner. There's oh, a good yeah. chance I might reach it. But I'm asking you not about coaching. But how about uh, going forwards when we have this kind of, uh, what do you call it, antagonism? Is that the right word? With, with Zverev complaining about Tsitsipas. We know that Medvedev and Tsitsipas are not, are not really getting on. Supposedly, that's what the media writes. Uh, is this good for tennis? Because the, the big three, let's face it, there hasn't exactly been fireworks emotionally between the big three ever, ever. I don't remember one single match when there was anything... Uh, that Federer or Nadal did to one another or anything that Djokovic or, or Rafa or Roger, I mean, I don't remember them publicly uh, uh, where you could see that they got upset with each other. But today, with Tsitsipas and Medvedev and Zverev, and, I mean, is this good for the game, Andy, to you, uh, who um, I would think enjoyed the era of Connors and McEnroe as much as you do this era now? Okay, Matt, first thing is I have to say that the thought of you slicing a backhand up the line to my forehand and coming in behind it is a bit petrifying because I can only think, particularly if this were to happen in, God forbid, Ash Stadium, what part of the right side of the second deck that this thing would have landed in, probably similarly to the way Novak Djokovic's ball hit the lines person in the throat at last year's U.S. Open, I would have hit somebody probably about 100 feet from the court. So uh, let's just start with that. Yeah, I did. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that era a lot. Although as a tennis coach, looking for players to have the juniors that I work with emulate, I much more enjoyed the Federer and Nadal era. But the point is, is that mainstream sports fandom and tennis in this country was never reached the level of popularity under Djokovic, Nadal, and 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 uh, and Federer's reign, as it did under that of Connors and McEnroe and Borg and 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 yourself and Becker and Edberg and Lendl and all these different contrasting personalities. So I think that what what was better for the game maybe is the theatrics that comes with the antagonism and the rivalries that actually are rivalries and not sort of friendly rivalries. But what I will ask you is this, Matts, when you were a Davis Cup captain, which is in essence a coach and a very important one at that. Did you not ever feel like when you had Robin Soderling, for instance, on the verge of an absolute meltdown, a nuclear one at that, or some of the other players that you had playing for you, 
that you knew exactly what they needed to do and you couldn't wait for the changeover so that you could sit them down and get in their head a little bit and help change the course of a match. Did that happen over the course of your captaincy? Yeah, definitely happened uh, quite quite often. I have to say that you think that you know what the player needs to do when you're sitting there, uh, and then the player comes in to the changeover, and then you start talking, and then you realize that oh, whoops, maybe this is not the right time. Maybe I have to wait for a couple of more games. I'm not sure, but uh, I'll give you a quick anecdote with uh, Robin Sertling. He was playing against David Nalbandian down in uh, Buenos Aires in Davis Cup. I was the captain. Uh, we're, we're down two matches to one, and it's about four all in the fifth set. And Robin Serling asked for an injury timeout because he's got a little blister on his, on his baby, baby toe, uh, takes his sock off, and it turns out there's really not a blister. He's, and he, I say, what, what's going on? said, I just needed a break. So anyway, he sits down uh, and he told me before the match to tell him to not throw the ball too far in front on his first serve. So what does Joachim Newstrom tell Robin when he starts to getting ready to get back out there? Uh, I look at Joachim Newstrom. I say, Joachim, anything, anything you want to say? And he said, yeah, Robin, don't throw the ball so far in front. <laughs> Sertling looks me straight in the eye and he says to me, Matt's, the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme has been shot. That happened in 1986. <laughs> and this is four all in the fifth oh. set. So can you imagine? He just kind of lost it with laughter because uh, Jokic was trying to coach him. So there was many times when I, I remember Jonas Bjorkman told me when he was really tired in one Davis Cup match against Guga Kurtan, he said, Tell me exactly what you want me to do on the first point, on the second point, on the third point, because he was too tired to think. So I think it's really, uh, uh, it really depends on the player himself or herself. And I do think that um, the, the, the trust you have to have in your coach to change something in a huge match Ooh, I don't know if that's a good thing uh, or a bad thing. I'm still a believer that the player in the end, overall, long-term, knows much better than your father or your mother or your coach or even your Brad Gilbert. All right. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the chord that you strike. It seemed, Johnny, like Paul Anacone had some very sound advice for Roger Federer on what to do with respect to getting to the net and attacking a little bit more. But then suddenly when Roger Federer was with Stefan Edberg, although it seemed like Edberg may have said the very same thing, finally he started to do it. Finally, that, that song started to resonate in Roger's mind. And suddenly we saw a big turnaround in that rivalry and it started to go back in Roger's favor. We saw the same thing with Andy Murray, with Yvonne Lendl. When you look over at that coach and you see what this coach had done as a player that maybe you're more willing to listen to what they have to say because of what kind of results they had on the court. Well, when you look at the results that the big three and put, put Murray in there because the guys won 46 ATP events with all the winning that they've done, do you think they would want coaching when, when they've done just fine without it? 20 grand slam talk, maybe they would think it would confuse them. Maybe they, they, they love their, winning methods now I, I would bet that the the three of them that the the big three right now would not want it um that would be my guess because look at all the winning and all the success they've had without it let me remind you guys of that match that big big semi-final match at the u.s open when roger federer had a couple of match points against novak djokovic remember that Federer serves out wide, and what do you think? The coach says, Novak, if he, hit, if he serves to your forehand, close your eyes and rip it as hard as you can because it's most probably going to go in. No, of course not. He wouldn't have said that. And Novak Djokovic decided that. So, again, I think that it's really, really hard to, to say. I am, I'm with you, Johnny. There is no way that when it comes down to it that either of the big four – because I agree with you, Andy Murray, even though he's only won three singles Grand Slam titles, he won the Olympics twice, he won Davis Cup. I didn't know the 46 ATP wins. That's, that's a few more than I thought, actually. But, I mean, he's very much closer uh, uh, than he is in numbers. I think he's much closer to the big three. I don't think they really want coaching. Rafa Nadal, we have heard that Uncle Tony supposedly has helped him a little bit in between points. But does it help or does it hurt? I don't know. I, I'm not. Um, I'm not convinced that coaching will help. Certainly, it didn't help Serena Williams uh, in 2018 against Naomi Osaka. 
All right, let's go to break. I'll say this, and that is that whether or not the players want it, it's not It's not going to be a matter of whether the players want it. It's going to be a matter of whether the sport wants it. And if the sport feels like it's going to help with marketing and help raise awareness and help with ratings and those kinds of things, that's what's ultimately going to decide that argument. And going forward, my suspicion is we're going to see more and more of it. All right, when we come back from the break, uh, as we are on the brink of another U.S. Open, Johnny, you're off to New York. Matt's obviously, you're off to New York. You guys, I'm sure, are going to have some fun getting together while you're there. Let's take a look at some of your U.S. Open memories from the past. And certainly there are several that bring a smile to my face when I think of them. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. U.S. Open memories from the careers of Matt's Vlander and Johnny Levine when we come back right after this. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Vlander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's Vlander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high quality training equipment in a clean and bright spacious workout area they have yoga and pilates as well as hydro options they also have martial arts and something i had never seen before trx suspension training but most importantly let's talk about the tennis you will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis time on court with mats is an amazing experience one i assure you you will never forget after my clinic with Matt's, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Hey everybody, Andy Zoden here. And before we get back to the show, uh, everyone at KickServeRadio.com, myself, Matt's, Johnny, everyone at Tennis Channel Podcast Network, everyone at Tennis Channel, everyone in the tennis community wants to send out their heartfelt condolences to the family of Tim Siegel, who lost their uh, beloved son and brother, Luke, who fought so bravely for so many years, had uh, had, had such tough luck in his life, but fought so bravely to... Uh, to hang in there for the years that he did and Luke got his wings last week and we all want to send our love and condolences to the Siegel family and wish you the best and you are in the thoughts of everyone in the tennis community. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment, kickserveradio.com. We've been talking about Father Time having the last word, and we're seeing now that Roger Federer has pulled out of the U.S. Open. Rafael Nadal now with a foot injury. Nick Kyrgios is in jeopardy, and we're seeing as these players age how it is finally starting to come to pass that, uh, that careers are now being looked at as being in the twilight. But let's look back in time at the careers at the U.S. Open of Mats Vlander of Johnny Levine. And Johnny, I'm going to start with you because one of the great highlights of Texas Longhorn tennis history while you were there was the fact that we were waiting for you to come back to school in the fall of, was it 1982? 83. It was 83 and you qualified. Was it a wild card to get into the main? I got a wild card that got summer. a wild card into yep. the main and you would play the big man, Victor Amaya, in the first round, and it was a David versus Goliath kind of situation. And we thought, well, that's that's kind of a good draw for Johnny, potentially, because he returns well. Victor Amaya is going to have to volley from his shoestrings all day long, and he certainly knows Stefan Edberg. Johnny's got a chance there. Well, you beat him. Now you've got Peter Fleming in the next round, and clearly that seemed like a little bit of a taller order because Fleming a little bit more of – a crafty volleyer, obviously the great doubles results with John McEnroe, but Peter Fleming was a guy that was a great singles player in his own right. You take that scalp as well. Where's Johnny? He's not at tennis practice. No, no, no. He's getting ready to play <laughs> Lendl. 
on the grandstand at the U.S. Open. Take us back through the memories of being a 20-year-old kid and what that must have been like while you're just waiting to start your junior year of college. Yeah, it was pretty crazy for me. I do remember, you know, waiting to see who I was going to play in the second round. It was either Fleming or Nastasi. Wow. And, you know, Nastasi was, you know, obviously, I think he might have even gotten a wild card. I'm not sure. But I think that would have been an intimidating one for me, for sure. Um, I'm glad I played Fleming. And, and and you know, the match with, with Peter Fleming, I, I my return was was good that day. And, and he has that big serve. And I was, I don't know how, I'd never played a five-set match, but I got through it. And it was pretty euphoric for me to all of a sudden be in the third round of a Grand Slam and have the opportunity to play Yvonne Lindell. Unfortunately, you know, I was an amateur and I never got back to that level uh, at, at a Grand Slam tournament in singles. So that was unfortunate. But but just having been through that was um, was for sure the highlight and, and playing Lendl on that court with a pretty packed grandstand. And, you know, there were some nerves for sure. I remember I broke him early in the match. Um, he hadn't been broken in the match. He ended up losing in the finals to Connors that year, but it was something that was super, super special. And I'll always uh, cherish it for sure. So obviously 1982, we, well, that was 83 for you. Uh, Matt's 1982, your first year on tour, you obviously you win the French that year. You have the epic match with McEnroe in St. Louis and Davis Cup, but then 82 U.S. Open. Talk about your experience there. Yes, yeah, so 1982 U.S. Open, um, I lost to Ivan. Okay. Uh, I lost to Ivan, and I believe it was in the fourth round. Um, I lost to Ivan in, uh, in a couple of my first U.S. Open, I think 82. Might have even lost to him in 83 as well uh, in the fourth round of the quarterfinals. U.S. Open to me was just a, a, a and I mean, Kevin Curran is obviously uh, famous or infamous for saying that uh, they, he thought they should drop an A-bomb on, out on Flushing Meadows because in those days, the airplanes were taken off right over your head from LaGuardia. Uh, there was a lot of noise going on and compare that to the French Open or Wimbledon. I mean, it's, it's like day and night. And if you're European and they're not rooting for you, it was a very, very uh, difficult environment to get used to. I was not uh, in love with the U.S. Open at all in the first couple of years. I fell in love with the U.S. Open, actually, when I fell in love in life with my now wife, Sonia, uh, in 1985. And suddenly I started liking U.S. Open. But it's a tough place when you're young. It's a tough place to play early in your career. I got used to it because of the event in Cincinnati. Eventually, I started winning a couple of times in Cincinnati. And I'm like, hold on, if I can win Cincinnati, surely I should be a, a sort of a threat at the U.S. Open. But um, it, it, it was a tough tournament to actually get to like. I know a lot of Europeans, and I know this might sound strange because it is, is a Grand Slam, and it's one of the biggest ones together with Wimbledon, I think. A lot of players don't like the U.S. Open because Manhattan is busy. There's a lot of traffic. You don't know how long it's going to take. Um, it's uh, towards the end of the hardcourt season. We have a lot of injuries always uh, leading into the U.S. Open, a lot of pullouts. Um, weather is, is up and down. So it is very, very tough, both uh, emotionally and physically, to uh, love the U.S. Open in the beginning of your career and then... I think you like it more and more. Sometimes, Matt, and I'll get back to you in just a minute, Johnny, because I want to revisit your quarterfinals of doubles in just a minute. But they talk about athletes um, sometimes withering to the brightness of the spotlight. And maybe in the case of New York, of course, Kevin Curran, as you mentioned, was very outspoken about um, not loving the atmosphere there. And I think the same may be said for Borg, although he would never come out and say it, but his results sort of spoke to that. What about the difference in playing under the lights in New York versus all of your other tournaments, at least at, in, in, in that generation being played uh, by the light of day, how much of a difference that made in a player's results with regard to just the actual vision on court? Yeah, I mean, very intimidating in one way to get out there on the, in our day. Obviously, the Louis Armstrong was the big center court. Uh, and uh, and I think people might 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 not know this, but Louis Armstrong was just a couple of thousand people smaller than the Arthur Ashe in terms of capacity. But of course, Arthur Ashe Stadium is much much bigger uh, as an arena. 
we did have uh, evening matches at the Australian Open uh, in uh, started in 1988. So so you got used to it a little bit. But yeah, playing in New York, I always thought it was really tough to be uh, a, a sort of a tactical player in New York because when you are using tactics. Uh, as your main weapon, you want the attention of your opponent. You want your opponent uh, to sort of see what you uh, are looking at, how you look at your opponent and, and all that, uh, all the tricks that you're trying to pull. But in New York, it's very difficult to get the attention of, of your opponents. Very uh, difficult to get the attention of the fans as well. I mean, sometimes I don't know if they even care who's playing. Uh, they like to get involved, and uh, it, it's not easy. There's a lot of pressure on the players to deliver a product that is entertaining uh, in New York, and I compare that to the other majors where really we don't care that much about entertainment. It's about winning and losing. But in New York, you actually do, oh, I did, care about the entertainment value, and you got nervous because I wasn't that entertaining, so I was hoping for close matches, even though, um, even though hopefully I, was, I would win them. Johnny, you had your best singles result in 1983, getting to the third round, losing to the great Yvonne Lendl. But your best doubles result would be in your last year on tour. And you and Eric Carita would have a terrific year making the quarterfinals at the French and the U.S. Open. And as we know, we've seen Americans really be carried to, to, to great levels of play because of that New York crowd. Was that the case for you and Eric playing in front of that American crowd every match and, and making it to, if memory serves, the quarterfinals and losing a five-setter to the eventual champions? Do I remember that correctly? Close, but not quite. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, me, me and Eric had a good combination. I mean, he obviously had the just enormous serve. Right. And um, so we complimented each other well. I returned well. Um, you know, I was a little more consistent. He was more aggressive, close friends off the court, and, right. and we just gelled on the court. And that that particular tournament, we had a very tough draw. We, we beat three great teams. We beat Visser and Aldrich, who were top 10 in the world. We beat Domley and De Palmer, and we beat Machir and Smith. So we had great wins. I mean, great players we played against. And it was, it, we just were rolling and we were just confident at that time. We had done well at the French. We believed we could win. And then we eventually played. Jorge Lozano and, and, and the late Todd Witzkin. Um, and that was just a, you know, a very, very close, tight five set match. We had some big chances to, uh, to, to, to go up two sets to love. We didn't capitalize and ended up losing it. It was really, really fun playing with Eric. We were pretty loose out there. It was towards the end of our career. So we're having more fun. We weren't as stressed out winning each of those tight matches against great players was just, really, really fun and, and exciting for us and, and being in New York and it's, you know, both me and Eric's favorite tournament, um, you know, the U S open. So, so to have that result was super special and it was really one of my last tournaments that I played. So um, definitely meant a lot to me to, to have that result. And obviously Matt's uh, you know, your last great result at a major was the 1988 U S open final. We've talked about it on this show uh, over and over again, your father was there. It was an amazing experience. You become the number one player in the world. But sometimes we lose sight of the path that got you to that final. I couldn't, right off the top of my head, name another match. I don't know who you beat in the semis. On so talk about what it was like to even get to that final. Were you ever in jeopardy of, of not getting there? I wasn't in jeopardy of not getting there in 1988, I don't believe. I, I, I beat Darren Cahill. Uh, pretty comfortably in the semis. And I was obviously, uh, I hope Darren is not listening, but that was obviously pretty <laughs> decent. That was pre pretty decent draw yeah. uh, to to kind of have a match where you kind of believe that I'm in the semis of the Open and I do believe I'm going to win this match right. and get to the final. So that was that was great, great preparation to go in to play Landel. I lost to Landel the year before in 1987. Uh, and I uh, really didn't think that, uh, I mean, I had a chance in 1988. I thought that before, but didn't necessarily feel like I was the favorite. But um, yeah, I, I, you just got more and more comfortable playing at the US Open. 1988, I had a tough match with Emilio Sanchez. Uh, I believe that was four sets as well. But um, no, I, I somehow um, the US Open got easier and more interesting, more exciting. And I think the main reason is the older you get, the more your tactics change going towards being more aggressive. 
And that's what I started doing in a hardcore. So I actually, I have to be honest, and you guys are most probably going to fall off your chair, but I actually enjoy playing on hardcourts more than on clay or grass uh, towards 1987, 1988, because I was able to come to the net a little bit um, and use my slice backhand and serve and volley, which is more fun. And the, the interesting thing was my intensity level was the same, but only for a couple of years. Because then I, I lost that because I think I changed my style. But uh, Ivan Lendl, on the other hand, I think he made the finals nine years in a row at the U.S. Open. Isn't that just incredible? Crazy. Yeah. Well, it, it answers the question that I've asked you before, which is where did you part ways with Bjorn Borg to allow you to do something that he was never able to do, which was to win a U.S. Open? And the way you described the way your game evolved to become more of a net player and use a slice backhand. But I would... I would beg to offer that you also, by 1988, Mats, became more a part of the New York fabric. You were a part of the scene. You were a part of New York. Maybe not to the extent that John McEnroe or Vita Scarolitis were, because who could ever be more New York than those guys? <laughs> but for a guy that originally came from Sweden to be in New York and be a part of the scene, I think you felt like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you really belonged and that it was going to be a situation where you were going to have a lot of fans there. You had evolved into a Swedish New Yorker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm like I said before, I met my wife, Sonia, in the U.S. Open 1985. We lived in the city for a couple of years. We moved out to Greenwich, Connecticut, of all places, where, of course, Ivan Lendl uh, uh, lived for, uh, for most of his career. Uh, and... Um, Eventually, I got to be number one in Greenwich, Connecticut in 1988. That was the big <laughs> joke at the time. Yeah, right. uh, but there was also a big joke going on at the time uh, that, that I heard in papers and whatnot. And, and the joke was if a Swedish tennis player and a Czech tennis player jump from the Empire State Building, who hits the ground first? Who cares was the answer. So, um, I mean, I know they wasn't that popular. But I did feel like, yeah, I, I became a little bit of a, of a New Yorker. And I think the fans... Uh, were rooting for me slightly more than for Ivan Landel, but that was also because because he was winning so much there and he was uh, basically unbeatable uh, and he was very intimidating. But uh, again, yeah, it, really fun. I mean, a night match at the U.S. Open when you're playing well, uh, yeah, that's that excitement is very very difficult um, to beat. Well, there were only three professionals, as we mentioned down at the Broadmoor, that won major championships in the year 1988. Steffi Graf won all four of them on the women's side. It was all Swedes all the time on the men's side as you won three and Edberg won Wimbledon that year. All right, it's the U.S. Open and it's coming up. Johnny Levine will be there. Mats Vlander will be there covering it for Eurosport. You'll hear more from us here on kickserveradio.com. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and damn proud of that. We appreciate you guys joining us. Look forward to seeing or hearing from all of you soon. And uh, enjoy that U.S. Open, everybody. More kickserveradio.com to come for the balance of 21. We'll see you soon.